Hello, welcome to Fuel, Rock Church's midweek Bible study, where we've been taking on an in-depth study of the book of Revelation. The great apostle John, exiled on the island of Patmos in the Aegean Sea, off the coast of Turkey, had a remarkable visitation. He was visited by the Lord Jesus Christ, and Jesus himself gave John directly the revelations in this book. He told him to write down the things he has seen, the things that are, and the things that will be hereafter. We've already covered in this study the things he had seen. That was chapter 1. We also covered the things that are in chapters 2 and 3, which we found out was an extraordinarily rich section of this book with Jesus dictating seven letters to seven churches that are applicable to all churches and all believers throughout history. But then in chapter 4, we switched gears, and we crossed over into the things that will be in the future, here, hereafter. In chapters 4 and 5, we were raptured with John through the open door in heaven, and we then witnessed the breathtaking majesty of the throne room of heaven. And we witnessed the worship scene like none other, as all of God's created beings acknowledge the worthiness of Jesus to execute God's plans to bring this rebellious planet of ours back into order. Jesus is the only one worthy to do this because Jesus is the only one who lived a sinless life and then offered himself up as a willing sacrifice to fully, voluntarily now, receive God's wrath for sin and absorb all the punishment that every human being who had ever lived or will ever live, deserved. And in so doing on the cross, Jesus defeated our mortal enemy, the devil. And now all of us who will by faith put our trust in him alone for the forgiveness of our sins will be set free in that moment from the condemnation we deserve. See, Jesus is worthy. Jesus is the only one that did that, and he is the only one that could have done that. So he alone is worthy, and that's the basis by which he takes the seven-sealed scroll from the hand of God the Father and prepares to execute the mission that will culminate in the kingdoms of this world becoming the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. We see him being fully worshipped as God. Powerful chapters, right? That was chapters 1 through 5. And then last time in chapter 6, we saw the tribulation kick off on earth. As Jesus up in heaven broke each of the first six seals, the effect of each broken seal was seen and felt on earth. The first six seals cover the first three and a half years of the tribulation. This period will be characterized by the rise of the Antichrist, leading after he rises to global war, economic collapse, worldwide famine, pestilences, also known as pandemics, persecutions and martyrdom of believers. That's the first initial series of judgments. And it ended, you remember seal six, with a massive earthquake. And when all is said and done in this opening scene of the tribulation, the earth will have been rocked harder than it ever has at any other time in history, with 25% of the earth's population wiped out. Just a note on this. One view that uh, some have of the book of Revelation is that all of these things in chapter 6 have already occurred throughout history, and particularly during the Roman Empire. 
they map it to that. And that's a very interesting thought. And I do agree that we have seen shadows of all these things throughout history. But one reason I do not accept that historical interpretation is that when I look at history and then I look at these first six seals, I can't reconcile the two. You see, because there's never, ever been anything on the scale of what was described in chapter 6. No, this is yet future, and this is a mega alarm clock designed to wake up people so they can be reconciled to God before the final judgment of the earth comes, which we will see when we come to the bold judgments in Revelation chapter 16. And so when we left off last time after the breaking of the sixth seal and after that massive earthquake, we left off seeing the people of this world trying to hide themselves from what's going on and many acknowledging that they understand that this is judgment coming from God because of our rebellion and the way that the lawlessness and sin of our world. And is coming through Jesus as they declare the great day of their wrath, God the Father and the Lamb, has come, and who is able to stand. Now tonight we're going to explore chapter 7. Chapter 7 is a remarkably interesting chapter. And if I could uh, describe its overall feel, I would say it's a chapter that allows us to catch our breath. Last week we saw these six rapid-fire judgments, and we talked about how once the time of the tribulation arrived in world history, it would hit with all the intensity of an EF4 tornado, but on a global scale. And so we covered three and a half years of the hardest time humanity had ever endured up until that point. And so now in chapter 7, we're going to move away briefly from the judgments And we're going to get some information on two distinct groups of people, the 144,000 and the great multitude. So let's do our roadmap of what we're covering in this lesson. This is our intro. Then we're going to move into uh, Daniel's 70th week. Last time we briefly mentioned that the tribulation will be the period of time when God finishes his program, his plan for the nation of Israel. See, there are those who have said that when Israel rejected Jesus as their Messiah, that God was done with them. But that is not scriptural. Amen. God is far from finished with the nation of Israel. As we will see, God's program for Israel was put on pause, so to speak, to make room for the church age, the time you and I are living in. But with the ending of the church age and the beginning of the tribulation, God will now hit the play button and his dealings with Israel as a people special to him, is now going to resume. This is a very Jewish book, if you'll notice, when we go through. Now, verse-by-verse breakdown of Revelation 7 will be what we cover next, and that will include the 144,000. There's been a lot of misinformation concerning the identity of the 144,000. Tonight's passage will, beyond a shadow of a doubt, refute the claims of the many false teachings out there concerning the 144,000. Then we're going to talk about the great multitude, which is this mysterious group of people that show up suddenly before the throne in this chapter. And it's going to provide great encouragement to you and I as we go through the trials and tribulations of this life and this time period that we live. All right, as we get going, let's start by refreshing our memories on what exactly the tribulation is. And then look briefly at Daniel's 70th week. 
The tribulation, if you remember, it is the seven-year period at the end of human history in which mankind's decadence and depravity will reach its fullness with God judging accordingly. And of note to us tonight, it will also be the period of time when God finishes his program for the nation of Israel. This is why one of the names of the tribulation is Daniel's 70th week. So what exactly is Daniel? Daniel's 70th week? Daniel chapter 9 gives us all this information. The angel Gabriel, he's talking to Daniel, and he lays out Israel's future to Daniel. And he does so by using the Jewish term Shabuah. Shabuah just means a set of seven. It's kind of like a dozen is just another way of saying a set of 12. A Shabuah is a set of seven. In this case, it's a set of seven years. He talks all about the first 69 Shabuahs. We translate Shabuah weeks, by the way, in the Bible. So he talks about the first 69 Shabuahs or, or weeks, but then in Daniel 9.27, he gives us some interesting information about the final Shabuah or the final week, the final seven years. And it's all about the events that happened during the tribulation. And we're going to read it now, and then we'll lift out the pertinent details. So Daniel 9.27, Gabriel speaking. He says, he will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And at the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. So that's Daniel's 70th week. It goes into detail as it pertains to the man of sin or the man of lawlessness, a.k.a. the Antichrist. And it tells us that he will confirm a covenant with many for seven years. But in the middle of the seven years, he will break the covenant by putting an end to sacrifice and offering. And then he will set himself up in the temple to be worshipped as God. This is the abomination of desolation. In Revelation 13, this is elaborated on when it explains that the beast will place an image of himself in the temple and require the world to worship him. So, Daniel's 70th week, just here's the takeaway here, it's the final seven-year period of God's dealings with the nation of Israel, but it's also the seven-year period of God's final dealing with the world as a whole right before Jesus the Messiah returns to earth to set up his millennial kingdom. All the great themes of the Bible and all the great themes of human history meet and have their culmination here in Daniel's 70th week, or as we commonly refer to it, the tribulation or the great tribulation. So with that as a backdrop, let's go ahead and turn to Revelation chapter 7, verse 1. It reads, After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, so that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. All right, so John had just seen the breaking of the first six seals. Seals one through four were the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Horseman one on the white horse, going forth conquering and to conquer, was the Antichrist. Horseman two on the red horse brought unprecedented war on the earth. Horseman three on the black horse brought economic collapse and along with it global famine. And then horseman four on the pale ashen, or sometimes translated green horse, just a quick note on this. I looked uh, this word up in the Greek because there were so many different colors referring to it. And it's actually the Greek word 
chloros. Chloros could be either green, yellowish pale, or ashen. Ashen is grayish pale, like a deathly pale. So it makes sense. This horse was either a pale yellowish, a pale green, or an ashen, deathly pale color. But I think however you visualize it, you'll get the point because this horseman brings death with it. And at this point, halfway through the tribulation, half of the uh, one quarter of the earth's population is wiped out. Next, the lamb broke the, the fifth seal, and we saw the martyrs, those who were killed, basically for doing what we are doing here tonight, following Jesus. Then John saw the sixth seal broke and this huge earthquake on earth. So large was this earthquake that John describes every mountain and every island as being moved from their place. And we validated the fact that islands and mountains move during earthquakes. If you remember, in 2011, Japan moved eight feet as a result of that massive quake that triggered the tsunami. And also, if you remember, that was when that uh, nuclear disaster happened at Fukushima nuclear power plant. Also, we discovered Mount Everest literally moved one inch as a result of an earthquake in Nepal in 2015. And so that's where we left John last week, watching the devastation of this massive earthquake and people all over the world trying to hide from its effects. One other thing uh, we didn't cover last time in detail was the thought that as John described what looked like shooting stars, some Bible teachers believe he may have been describing nuclear warfare. Because ICBMs, which are intercontinental ballistic nuclear missiles, they're launched into space and then they re-enter Earth's atmosphere. So to a first century man, this could have looked like shooting stars. It could have looked like a meteor shower. So that's pretty wild. So anyway, John sees this and then chapter 7 opens. There is a pause, a quiet before the next storm. He sees four angels standing on the four corners of the earth and they are holding back the four winds of the earth so that no wind blows anywhere on earth. And so as we get ready, next chapter to see the breaking of the seventh seal and the beginning of the seven trumpet judgments, we have this eerie calm. It's been described like this, as if these four angels will, will turn off the essential engine of our Earth's atmosphere for a brief time. Now, did you notice the key word in this verse? Four angels, four corners of the earth, four winds. It's the number four. We know that everything, especially numbers, have meaning in Scripture. One is the number of the only God. Two is the number of confirmation. Whenever you see two in the Bible, it means that it's really going to happen. It's a confirmation. Three is the number of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Seven, as we talked about, means completion. And Bible commentators believe that the number four represents God's creation and possibly judgment of God's creation. And I think that fits, especially regarding what we're seeing here. Because as we'll see, these four angels are going to be moving in judgment in a bit on the world. Now, one last thing. Some people get tripped up when they see statements like the four corners of the, of the earth in the Bible. They say the earth is not flat and it does not have corners, as if it's some kind of gotcha moment, like the Bible makes a mistake. But on this, just remember, it's a figure of speech. 
For example, we all know what somebody means when they use the term sunrise and sunset, right? We don't try and correct them, even though we know that the sun doesn't really rise or set. We just know it's a, a very well-known figure of speech. That's what he's saying here. The four corners of the earth indicate north, south, east, and west, the four coronal direct directions of the compass. Now, John says in verses 2 and 3, And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. John now sees a fifth angel who gives a command to the other four. See, these angels are about to bring judgment, but there's something that has to happen first. The bondservants of God need to be sealed on their foreheads. What on earth does that mean? We're going to look at that in a second, but let's go ahead now and read uh, verses 4 through 8 first, which is going to tell us who these folks are that are getting sealed. John tells us, and I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. From the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. If you notice a careful study of that, there's a tribe missing. I'm not going to tell you who it is. I want you to figure it out. But there's a tribe missing. Why do you think they're missing? Maybe we'll explore that in a later session. All right. So here we go, 144,000. There are three main facts in this passage. First, there are 12,000 Jews from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, minus Dan, totaling 144,000 in view here. Second, they are all, every single one of them, being sealed with the seal of God on their forehead. And the third fact is that the tribulation cannot progress until this event takes place. Now, the mystery. Who are these people? And again, here is where our verse-by-verse -verse study is of such great advantage to us because these 144,000 and what various groups say about them is a great example of how this book can get twisted into all kinds of stuff. You'll see what I mean in just a minute if you lift it out of context. One of the principles of Bible interpretation is that context is king. Everybody say context. Context, what came before it and what comes after it. If you keep it in context, this is a very easy passage to understand as we're going to see. But before we do it, I just thought it would be an interesting exercise to take a look at what some other groups say about the 144,000. This is not to slam them, but it is to protect us from false teachings. Christians and non-Christians alike have been misled because of the persuasive way that cult groups teach passages just like this one. So let's go ahead and start with the Jehovah's Witnesses. What do they say about this? 
Jehovah's Witnesses believe that exactly 144,000 faithful Christians from Pentecost of 33 AD until the present day will be resurrected to heaven as immortal spirit beings to spend eternity with God in Christ. So if you are a Jehovah's Witness, but not of this number, then your eternal hope is just to survive Armageddon because only 144,000 are getting in, are, are going to be immortal. But if you survive Armageddon, you will be one that resides on earth permanently. That's what they teach. There's two classes of people. There's the 144,000, the super saints, and then there's a group that just have to survive Armageddon and they get to live on the earth. They're the super ain'ts, right? Super saints and ain'ts. Here's the deal, though. This contradicts the Bible's clear teaching on salvation by grace through faith. Aren't you glad there are no distinctions or classes among those who are saved? On the contrary, if you have put your faith in Christ alone for salvation, you are right now a born-again new creation in Christ and a child of God on equal footing with all the others throughout history who have trusted in Christ alone for salvation. There are no super saints in God's house. Amen? We are all equally sinners saved by his grace. Next, let's look at the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, also known as Mormons. They believe that the sealing of the 144,000 relates to the high priests ordained unto the holy order of God to administer the everlasting gospel. According to their document titled Doctrines and Covenants, the 144,000 are they who are ordained out of every nation, kindred, tongue, and people by the angels to whom is given power over the nations of the earth to bring as many as will come to the church of the firstborn. Say what? All right. Well, the Bible does clearly teach that those who are in Christ are a priesthood that ministers to him. It does not teach anywhere that there is a distinct group of high priests. There is only one high priest now, and it is the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Next up, Unification Church. The Unification Church was founded by the Reverend Sun Myung Moon. They believe that the 144,000 represents the total number of saints who Christ must find who can restore through indemnity the missions of all the past saints who, despite their best efforts to do God's will, fell prey to Satan when they failed in their responsibilities. He, Christ, must find these people during his lifetime and lay the foundation of victory over Satan's world. All I can say concerning that is there's no scriptural basis to support that belief. Next up is Islam. 144,000 is said by some to have been the number of Sahaba or companions of Muhammad. A Sahabi is someone who saw Muhammad during his life, believed in him, and then later died as a Muslim. 144,000 in Islam is also given as the total number of prophets, although that's also been reported as 124,000 or 244,000. Again, I bring this up to say that if the Bible is your standard of truth, then there is nothing in it that validates this statement. 
Next, let's move on to New Age movements. New, new Age movements have also assigned meaning to the number 144,000. This is where it gets really crazy, okay? The church universal and triumphant teaches that Sanat Kumara and the Lords of the Flame brought 144,000 souls with them from Venus. Realism states that there are 144,000 chosen people to continue humanity in case of an upcoming disaster. The satirical church of the subgenius believes that somewhere between 144 and 144,000 people will be taken with the zists aboard the pleasure saucers. I did a short study on this religion, by the way, and all I could tell you is it sounds like the result of somebody's bad 1970s acid trip, for real, okay? I'm not trying to denigrate them, but that's the way they came across, all right? So as you can see, there are so many wild things out there, but the interpretation of this one is pretty straightforward, and really it's one of the easiest texts to decipher in the entire book. So let's, again, look at the three main facts of this passage regarding these 144,000. 12,000 Jews from each of the 12 tribes of Israel totaling 144,000 are in view here. Second, they're all, every single one of them being sealed with the seal of God on their foreheads. And the third fact is that the tribulation cannot progress until this event, the sealing of the 144,000 takes place. So let's go ahead and cover the seal on the forehead first. Whenever you see a seal on somebody's forehead in the Bible, especially here in Revelation, it denotes ownership. Remember, in ancient days, when a ruler put his seal on something, it meant he took his signet ring, pressed it into the wax, and then the imprint it created told the world who it belonged to. It was used to prove authenticity, show ownership, and protect it. These 144,000 are literally being sealed by God. And here's an encouraging thought. If you are in Christ, you are already sealed. The Bible tells us that we have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. And that proves your authenticity. It shows who you belong to, God himself. And it means that he is with you, so you have nothing to fear. Now, is this seal that these Jewish believers sealed with visible in the natural realm to those on earth? I don't think so. Nobody really knows. But I do believe that the seal is visible in the spiritual realm. And I believe these 144,000 are going to be protected, based on Scripture, from being destroyed during the tribulation because of that seal. That seal indicates, don't you touch these people. Now the mystery. Who are these people? I think there's no reason to doubt that they are who the Bible says they are. Most scholars agree these are literally 144,000 Jewish believers who come to Christ during the tribulation. Think about it and go back now in your mind to the 70th week of Daniel. So the first six seals are broken. So right now, you and I, we've seen now we're at the middle of the tribulation, right at the three and a half year mark. And according to Daniel chapter 9 that we read, the abomination of desolation occurs right at this point, right in the tribulation. If you're unfamiliar with the abomination of desolation, it is a key prophetic event foretold multiple times in Scripture by including Jesus himself. And what it tells us is that in the middle of the tribulation, the Antichrist goes 
right into the temple in Jerusalem, which will be rebuilt, and will call himself God. He says, you've been waiting for me, here I am. And he demands to be worshipped as God. And up until that time, the Jewish people will think that the Antichrist is the Messiah. But when they see him go in and they see this happen, they'll know that they have missed the Messiah because this is the abomination of desolation that Gabriel warned Daniel about. So they're going to be very familiar with it. And what will be wild then is that because once the light goes on there, there's going to be a massive conversion of Jewish people who will then realize that they missed the true Messiah, Jesus. And so they'll become followers of Jesus in massive numbers. That's what's in view here. With the sealing of the 144,000, many Bible teachers believe that these 144,000 are actually Jewish missionaries who will now be sealed and used by God to proclaim the gospel to those still alive on planet Earth. But whether they're missionaries or not, we can say with assurance the facts about them that we know for sure. They are Jewish. There are 144,000 of them, and the tribulation is not going to progress until they're sealed with the seal of God, and they will be protected because of it. And don't miss this now. This is a great example about how studying what the Bible teaches on a subject will protect you and I from false teaching. Amen? Now, John shifts focus to the second group of people in this chapter, the great multitude. Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 12. He says, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches, were in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen? Amen. This is a worship book, guys. This is another crazy worship scene. But let's break this down here. John's gaze now shifts from earth back to heaven. And what he sees is astonishing. He sees a multitude that nobody can number. They are from all the people groups of the entire world. This is an international group from every tribe, people, and tongues. And this flies in the face of what the Jehovah's Witnesses say about there only being 144,000. Here is a number more than anybody could number. <laughs> so it's more than 144,000 right there in heaven with the Lamb. So even in the chapter that's used to teach that there's only 144,000, God puts in truth that refutes that false claim. Don't you love the Word of God? Now, they're dressed in white robes. The white robes represent that they have trusted in the finished work of the Lord Jesus to be made right with God. Now, regarding the palm branches in their hand, in ancient times, palm branches were associated with celebrations. We know when Jesus uh, made his triumphal entry, they were waving the palm branches in celebration and worship that the Messiah has making his entry. In Jewish history, they were used during the Feast of Tabernacles, and like I just mentioned, of course, the people waved the palm branches as Jesus as he made his way into Jerusalem. 
And the reason why is they were celebrating their belief that the Messiah had now come. And so these folks, these great multitude up in heaven, they began worshiping Jesus. This is almost like the triumphal entry part two. And as they do it, it sets off another round of worship. The angels of God, the elders, the four living creatures join this great multitude in worshiping God. But who are they? One of the elders is going to help us out. Let's look now at verses 13 through 17. It says, Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, These who are clothed in the white robes, who are they? And where have they come from? I said to him, My Lord, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation, and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason, they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. They will hunger no longer, nor thirst any more, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd and will guide them to springs of the water of life, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So the elder asked John who they are, and John shrugs his shoulders. He has no idea. And so the, elderly th- uh, the elder thankfully gives him and us the answer. So let's look at the facts. Number one, they have come out of the Great Tribulation. They have come out of the events that are going on right now. Number two, they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So this supports the idea that there's going to be a massive revival during this time because they became believers during the tribulation. And then notice, God is giving them a special blessing. They will be before his throne and serve him day and night. They had just endured the misery and suffering of the first half of the tribulation. From this point on, there would be no more suffering, no hunger or thirst, no more crying. Jesus will be their shepherd, and all tears will be wiped from their eyes. These folks, they may have missed Jesus and may have not put their faith in in him before the tribulation, but thank God they found him during this time. And it's a great multitude that nobody could number. Maybe the 144,000 witnessed to him. But John is witnessing this now. Take a second to think about it. Think about these new believers, too, while they were on earth during the tribulation. I bet as they read this chapter in those first three and a half years of the tribulation, It's going to give them great encouragement. They're going to be suffering, but they will know that there's coming a day when all of that will become a thing of the past. Now let me just talk to you for a moment. This is also a great reminder for you and I. Uh, It's probably a good bet that you, you, if you've been enduring this last six months and you see what's going on uh, right now, doesn't seem to be letting up at all, that you are enduring some kind of suffering, at least on some level. This is a great reminder to to us that suffering down here can be intense at at times. But one thing that we can rejoice in is that it's not permanent. Amen? There's coming a day when all the pain you're enduring, sickness, disease, sin, evil, it's all going to be a distant memory. And even when we're suffering down here, 
when we have God in our lives, we know that he is going to help us get through it and not just help us survive, but we have the promise that somehow he's going to work it all for our good. So that's good news. The Apostle Paul says that I consider the sufferings of this present time not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. You might be suffering right now, but let me encourage you. you got some glory that's going to be revealed. When, when the end of the age comes or when your time comes to go back to be with Jesus, but let me tell you something. If you're suffering right now, I can tell you that there's some glory on the other side of that. Hang in there and don't quit. Amen? Amen. And that's a good place to wrap up our study of chapter 7. With God reminding us that times may be hard, but he is with us. And in the end, he's going to comfort us. And in the end, it's all going to be worth it. Now, next week, our little break from judgment's over. Next time, we're going to see that the judgment of the earth will not only resume, but it will intensify. The lamb is going to break the final seal. And we're going to see that that leads to the next series of judgments. The seal judgments are complete at that seventh seal. Now the trumpet judgments will begin as God continues his mission to restore his creation. It's going to be powerful. And by the way, if all goes right, our next study will be next Tuesday. It'll be live from the sanctuary of Rock Church. I'm really looking forward to seeing everyone. But until then, it's my prayer that God will continue to bless you and yours. See you soon.